Well, why don't you go ahead with me and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Today we're going to continue our series on sanctifying the ordinary, taking things that can at least appear ordinary and looking at what does God's word say about those things. And the topic I want us to look at is the topic of baptism, the sacrament of baptism. And as I was preparing this message today, on a number of occasions, I was reminded of a scene in the movie, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Now, I imagine most people have probably seen that. It's a great movie, great film. And there's, for those of you that haven't, there's new, it's well worth seeing because there are numerous parts in that story where you get to see effectively the atonement. You get to see Jesus. And that's why C.S. Lewis wrote it. It's a, it's a representation of the gospel and a fantastic one too. So there's different words in it where he's on the stone and when he's addressing the white witch, when Aslan's addressing the white witch at different points, you think, yeah, that is the power of Jesus. But the scene that came to my mind as prepared this message is a scene right at the start of the movie when Lucy, first of all, goes through the wardrobe. She goes into the wintry wonderland and she meets Mr. Tumnus. And, and it's quite a strange moment, isn't it? She's obviously never seen a man half fawn before, and he's never seen a son, of, a son or daughter of Adam before. And so she goes up to him, and he's really scared. And, and they start talking, they start communicating. And after a while, she, she holds out her hand to him to shake his hand. And he just looks at her as if, say, well, what do I do? And he actually says to her, you know, what do I do? And she says, oh, you shake it. At which point the four and Mr. Thomas just said, why? And she paused for a moment and she waits and you can see her thinking. And she says, I don't really know. And you think, I don't know. And, and as, my, as I was mindful of that moment as I prepared this message, Lucy, all throughout that experience, just couldn't understand really when somebody says to you, why do you do that? She couldn't explain it. She couldn't explain the meaning of shaking hands. She couldn't explain the purpose of shaking hands. And I think for so many Christians, if we're honest, when it comes to the Lord's ordinances, the two sacraments, water baptism and the Lord's Supper, when people really press us on, why do you do that? I think if we're honest, a lot of Christians would say, I don't really know. It's just something we, we do. It's a church thing. See, sacraments, I think, can so easily become ordinary, can't they? They can so easily be something that we just, well, this is what we do. This is what we happen to believe as a church, and they can so easily then become a meaningless ceremony. And yet I believe the Lord wants baptism and the Lord's Supper to be way more than ordinary, meaningless ceremonies in our lives. I think the Lord in his grace wants us to see that baptism and the Lord's Supper are extraordinary. They're moments of great worth. And so over the next two weeks, I want us to assign to the sacraments the meaning and purpose that the Bible assigns to the sacraments the meaning and purpose that God assigns to them. So I've asked Brendan if he would speak next week on the Lord's Supper, which is the second sacrament, and I'm going to speak this week on baptism, water baptism. And it's my hope that we would benefit spiritually from this, that we'd be strengthened in our faith, and that we would grow in our, in our understanding and practice and appreciation of baptism. So Matthew 28. Let's read from verse 16 through 20. This isn't going to be an expositional sermon by nature, but I am hitting on certain pieces of obviously baptism, and then we're going to look at what the Bible says. So let's start right here. He says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, 
all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, as we read and hear that moment afresh this morning, Lord, it's a staggering moment as you address your disciples as they represent us and the local church. A staggering call on them to go and make disciples of all nations and baptizing people and teaching people. Lord, that's the call on our lives. And so, Lord, as we explore then this call to baptize this morning, Lord, would you fill our minds afresh about what this really is so that when people ask us, we don't just communicate with theological clarity, but we communicate with a passion that is reflective of the gift that these sacraments are. You have been so kind to us in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we refer to the Lord's Supper and baptism as the sacraments. Some of you may be wondering, why on earth do we do that? What is a sacrament? So by way of background, definition of a sacrament, a sacrament is a religious ceremony of mysterious and sacred significance. That's what a sacrament is, a mysterious, a religious ceremony of mysterious and sacred significance. The Roman Catholic Church has seven. We're Protestants, so we only actually have two. The reason why we have two is because there's only actually two that Jesus ordained to be carried through into the New Testament. All the other things that he didn't ordain, and they were just made up actually traditionally, but he actually ordained two. And that's the Lord's Supper and baptism, two prescribed and ordained sacraments by the Savior. And that's why sometimes you'll hear them called ordinances. They're exactly the same thing. The two sacraments and ordinances are exactly the same thing, the two things that Jesus ordained. And right here in Matthew 28, we see Jesus instituting and ordaining baptism. For all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and in the Holy Spirit. It is a command from Jesus. It is an ordinance that we're to observe. It's a sacrament that he's saying right up front then, this is really important for you. In fact, this is absolutely paramount for you. See, there's no question that biblically defined, Jesus puts an awful lot of weight on baptism. He just does. So we shouldn't be affected by our religious traditions in that. We need to be affected by God's word in that. And right up front, three things. I need you to go, I need you to teach, and I need you to baptize. It's right up there as one of the big things that he's mentioning and that he's talking about. And really that brings me to my first question. The first question of three this morning that I want us to pull apart as we examine this topic is the first one. Number one, what is so significant about baptism? I mean, what's up with that? Why is baptism so important to Jesus? Why is baptism something that he truly treasures and then instructs us to do? Why did Jesus put so much weight on baptism. Why isn't it enough just to become a Christian and be done with it? Why does it really matter? Why did he think it was so significant? And why does he command us to be baptized? What is so significant about baptism? Here's what's significant. If you're making notes, write this down. Baptism is an expression of the Savior's care for his church 
a gift. A sign and seal to teach and assure us of our salvation. Baptism is an expression of the Savior's care for his church. A gift. It's motivated by love and care for the people that are coming into the kingdom of God. And that are becoming Christians. It's a sign and a seal to teach and assure us of our salvation. See, let's be clear right from the off. Participation in baptism does not save anybody. And it never will. Never has. Never will. When you go under the water and then you come back out, you are not actually saved in that moment. We don't believe that, correct? Because you're looking nervous at me. We do not believe that. We believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. End of story. So the thief on the cross was not baptized. It was tricky. He's on the cross. But he was still, without question, saved in that moment. He's saved through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how one becomes a Christian. So Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not for by grace you have been saved through baptism. Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that, so, so that no one may boast. So when an individual puts their faith in Jesus Christ, when they repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ, they are truly and completely and gloriously saved in that moment. But then as they then examine what does it mean to walk with Jesus, well, here's first up, we'll get baptized. This is, this is now the call. Why? Well, because this is from the Savior, a gift to you. An expression of his care, a sign and a seal to teach you and to assure you of your salvation. To teach you and assure you about what Jesus has done for you in grace. Let me explain for a moment what I mean by this sign and seal. How does that really work? You see, a sign, by very nature, first up, a sign is something that points to the reality of something else, right? So I wear a wedding ring. It's a sign. It's a sign that I'm married to Emma and that she's somebody I'm committed to and I love. So you wear the wedding band to to show that. At the Olympics, they get given the gold medal and everybody wants a gold medal, but it's not an end in of itself. It's a pointer to something. It's a pointer that you're a great athlete and you're really good at at doing something else. If I have a diploma, which I don't, but if I did, you get a big certificate and you think, well, that's great. But it's not the certificate itself that you necessarily treasure. It's that that it points to. It points to your achievement somewhere else. And so it is with baptism. It's, it's a pointer, a sign, something that points us to something far greater, namely the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the profound effect that his life and death and resurrection had on our lives. It's a pointer to his incredible saving grace. And so symbolically, baptism as a sign is a symbol of two specific things. Firstly, that we have been washed clean of all our sins. Don't you love that? You ever wondered why you can't get baptized in custard or beans instead? I mean, maybe that was just me growing up as a Christian home. You think, why water? I mean, I want jelly. It's because the water is, is significant symbolically. It's something that, that there's actually something in this actually symbol that does symbol what Jesus does for us. So in 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 through 11, Paul says this. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. He's talking about our past lives. Before you became a Christian, 
This is what some of you were like. You were sinners. You rejected God in all his mercy and all his grace. You rejected him. But, he continues, having put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you will, listen, but you were washed. Don't you love that? You were washed clean. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. When you become a Christian... God in his grace looks at all your sin, your past sin, your present sin, and your future sin, and he washes you clean of it. It's one of the things he does. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, you are completely and utterly washed clean. He takes our forgiveness, he takes our sin, and he removes it as far as the east is from the west. He remembers it no more, and he washes you clean. Well, baptism points to that. That's part of the point. It's a sign. So in Acts 22, verse 16, Ananias says to Paul, and so now why do you wait? What's he on about? Well, you've just heard the gospel, and you've clearly just responded to the gospel in faith. So what are you waiting for? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Well, you can only wash away your sins through faith. His point is rise, get baptized, because God in his grace has given you a sign, something that you'll remember for the rest of your life, so that as you go into the water and come out of the water, and you are aware, my body is being cleaned by this water, it will always be a sign for you that that's exactly what God in his grace has done for your innards. He's washed you clean. You've been forgiven of your sin. It's as real as the water cleansing your body. His forgiveness to your soul. Isn't that wonderful? What a wonderful sign, a physical sign, that this is exactly what he's done to your inside. He's cleaned your soul. So symbolically, baptism is a sign of that, that we've been washed clean of our sins. But it's also a sign that we have been united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And that's very clear in the New Testament. So Romans 6, verses 3 through 5, Paul says, Do you not know... That all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. And he then says, similarly to the Colossians, in Colossians 2 verse 12, he says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Paul is helping us see that symbolically, baptism isn't just a pointer that you've been washed clean. Baptism is a symbol and a sign to point you to how you've been buried with Christ and how you've been raised with Christ. So when you are put under the water, so to speak, symbolically as a sign, that is a sign of your your unity with Christ in his death. The fact that sin's punishment and power has been truly broken in your life. You have an effect in your humanity died early. And that's what it's symbolizing as you go under the water. Now, praise God that your pastor doesn't keep you under for three days. okay? But it's symbolizing that another one was kept under for three days. Somebody did die in your place. And so as you go into the water, it's a, it's a reminder and a pointer to the fact that he died for you. And you, are now di- you have died with him. You are united with him. And so the power of sin has been broken in your life. The punishment of sin, ultimately death, has been completely broken in your life. And then as you're raised up out of the water, that's a pointer and a sign to how you've been unified with Christ in his resurrection. 
It points us to that last day, the moment when the trumpet sounds and Jesus comes and everybody is raised from the dead. It's a pointer to how in that day you'll be raised and given a new body and a new life. But it's not just a pointer to that day, it's a pointer to this day as well. So 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has been put away. Behold, the new has come. So as you are raised, if you are buried with Christ in the water, as you are pulled out, it's also a sign, a glorious sign that you are a new creation in Christ. It's new now for you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. You've been forgiven, washed clean, you've been redeemed, you've been justified. Heaven is your home and you will always remember as a sign this moment that you're a new creation in Jesus Christ now. Something's different for you. You've not only been washed clean, it's starting again for you. You have been literally born again. It's a sign of that moment. It's not just a sign. It's also a seal. See, baptism, I think, doesn't just signify those things. It also seals those things. It seals the truth that it represents. I mean, we talked earlier about a handshake, right? And Mr. Tumnus, who I think is real, by the way. Um, just in case you're wondering, at least that's what my kids say, and I, I believe them. But imagine for a moment, when you, when you actually put a handshake out, and you actually show people your hand, it's a sign, okay? It's a sign that you're offering friendship to them, acceptance to them, love to them, you're grateful for them. And so you, you put out your hand to shake their hand, and that's great. But I think in so many ways, it's not just a sign, is it? When you actually then connect with that person's hand, and you feel them, and you start to shake their hand, there is a bond between you that is reinforced. A connection over something that happens at that moment. It's not just a sign. There's something sealed then as you take the hand that, yeah, you are my friend, and I do accept you, and I do love you. We're like that in everything that we have. When you stop and think about it, we are physical people. God didn't have to give us sacraments at all. Could have just said, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. On you go. Could have done. But we're physical people. We're wired to be physical. And so when, when, when I play soccer and the team scores, they didn't, when I started playing soccer, they didn't say, you know what, um, here's what we're going to do. When we score, it's very important you run up to each other and hug people because um, it's part of the protocol. Nobody explains that, but as soon as you score, people are like, oh my gosh, hug. You know, everybody wants to be a part of it. We're high-fiving, we're shaking hands. Man, that was a great goal. It's because it's not just a sign that that was good. There's something sealing in that moment when we do that. We're all like it. When we celebrate something, you don't go to, go to a wedding and then, oh, isn't this wonderful? And then you just go to the bride and go, well done. You know, you give her a hug. Or, you know, there's just that desire to, I want you to know that I'm with you because I want this to seal. When somebody's really sick, you go visit them in hospital. You don't, you don't sit over the other side of the bed, do you? You go to them and you hold their hand or you, you're with them. It's not just a sign that I'm with you. There's something sealed in that moment. As you sense that individual's hand on your shoulder, it's not just a sign that they're with you. There is something tangible in your life in that moment where you're aware you are with me and I'm grateful. We're like that. We're physical people. God knows that. God designed that. So it shouldn't be any surprise then that God gives us physical sacraments to remind us. 
So in the going under the water, it's a physical moment where we realize this is a sign that we've been washed clean, but it's also a physical moment where we realize I've been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. And it's a physical experience that you get to remember for the rest of your life, one that you look back on and you know I wasn't saved in that moment, but what a great moment of teaching me and assuring me of what Christ has done because I remember it and I experienced it. I experience the water. I experience the coldness of what it is to be in the Thompson's pool when you're under the water. It's freezing. But I've also experienced the moment when you come out of the water and people are looking around and cheering and you're aware, Jesus is my life. It's an experience. Not just a sign. It's a seal. It's a seal of what God has done. So what is so significant then about baptism? Well, baptism is significant because it's an expression of the Savior's care for his church. It's a gift, a sign and a seal to teach and assure us of our salvation. So number two, then, why should a person get baptized? Because we can even understand that, right? And we can think, yeah, lovely, it's a sign and a seal. Thanks for playing. Um, is it kind of optional? Or you know, is it, can I have the seal or can I not? Or you know, how, how does this really work? Why should a person get, get baptized? Why should a person who has put their faith and Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior, then go ahead and get baptized. Well, there's a number of reasons. First reason is this. First reason why a person should get baptized or put their faith in Jesus is as a joyful and appropriate response to the call of God on their lives. As a joyful and obedient and appropriate response to the call of God on their lives. Throughout the New Testament, there are numerous passages that talk of and give us example of baptism being the called for response to Christ's finished work. And which indicate that baptism in so many ways is the clear marker of the beginning of the Christian faith. And so in Matthew 28, Jesus gives us the great commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's just pretty straightforward. It's not, we don't need to build all traditions into it. Just, just, just examine the text. Clearly, I've got to go after people. I've got to tell people about Jesus. And as they respond, like Ange did a few months ago, you know, straight away, it's like, this is great. We need to get you baptized. Because this is, a, this is a gift from the Savior to assure you and teach you of your salvation, to show you physically what he's done in, in your insides and in your soul. So let's get baptized. It's not like an optional. Oh, well, they're in, but yeah, perhaps we'll mention that in a few years. It's like, no, this is something that's very quick. And all the way through the New Testament narrative, you see it then very, very quickly laying out. So in Acts chapter 2 onwards, we see the Great Commission unfolding. So Acts chapter 2, verse 37, says, Now when they heard this, well, what did they hear? They heard Peter preaching the gospel to them. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? In effect, brothers, how shall we respond? And so Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Three verses later, we see that's exactly what they did. So those who received his word, i.e., those who heard it and said, You know what? I believe you're right. I'm going to repent of my sin and put my faith in Jesus Christ. Those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's what you call revival. Can you imagine that? Sovereign Grace Church goes from 100 to 3,100 in one afternoon. That would have to be a big pool for a start. But that's exactly what happened. You know, people say, well, do I have to go on a really lengthy baptism class? 
Not really. Do you believe Jesus died for you? Yes. Have you made him your king? Yes. Get in. You know, we don't. This is it. This is New Testament living. 3,000 out of that day. Did every pastor sit down with every individual and say, tell me about your testimony at length and let me ask you about Reformed theology. They're not asking anything. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Get in. This is a sign and a seal. Get in. And Acts chapter 8 then, verse 12, says, But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. Both men and women, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Acts 10, verse 44, Peter in Cornelius' house. says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. But they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. That was a giveaway. Then Peter declared... Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And the story then continues. Acts 16, verse 14. Acts 16, verse 32. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 16. And then out through the other letters. You see, time and time again, people become Christians and then straight away, let's baptize you. Let's baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's respond with this, because this is a gift given to you by the Savior to assure you and teach you of your salvation as a sign and as a seal. Well, that's the first reason then why anybody should get baptized, because that's what everybody does in the New Testament. Having been commanded by the Savior to instruct people and go and make disciples, when somebody responds, the first thing we do is say, let's get baptized. Let's do this. Let's get in the pool. But that's not the only reason. There's also the reason, number two, of, as a testimony. It's also a great testimony. See, it's a testimony, I think, to God. See, like everything else we do in our lives, it's worship, right? And so we go through Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and we realize I've been saved by grace alone. Jesus has done everything for me. And you get to Ephesians 4, and you think, you know what then? How am I meant to respond? Well, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Okay, how do I do that? Get baptized. Seems to be a pretty good starting place. It's a testimony to God that, Lord, I'm in. You're my everything. And yeah, sure, you're not saved in that moment. You're saved by your faith. But does that mean we never do anything? We never allow our faith to then follow through? Faith without works is dead. So, okay, no, I put my faith in you. What do you want me to do? Well, you know what? Serve, find a church, get baptized, start praying. You know, there are numerous things that as a Christian we then do. and, And baptism is one of them. It's a testimony to self as well. As a sign and a series. So, you know what? It's also a testimony to others, particularly to the church and to our communities and to family and friends. As you see an individual get baptized and you have a pastor there and he's explaining to people what is actually going on and what this symbolifies, this is a great testimony here. This is like a reenactment here of what is going on in the heavenly realms. This is a reenactment of what Jesus has done for them through this symbolism, glorious symbolism. And so, friends and family get to look on and think, you know what? This is amazing. This is pretty unique, what you believe, because it points to Jesus Christ. It points to, to somebody else. And so it's a testimony. That's why I want to encourage everybody. Just when we gather as a church for baptism, you know, as best we can, we need all the church there. Because in so many ways, biblically, starting point doesn't really exist in the Bible. You become a member of a church by getting baptized in the Bible. 
this is really important. This is a church event where we gather. We say, you know what? This is vital. This is where I show my commitment to the church. So it's an expression from us to the church, but it's also an expression from the church to that individual that, good to have you. We're here. Welcome. It's also a means of experiencing God's grace. And I think this one is often missed out, but should not be missed out. I understand why it is missed out, because I think it could be misconstrued. But just because it's misconstrued, shouldn't be, it should still be taught. Baptism is a means of experiencing God's grace. Now, let me explain. You cannot earn God's grace, right? Can you do anything that earns God's grace? No, exactly. It's just, thank you, Oliver. It's lovely to see you listening. <laughs> Jesus is the only one that can earn for us grace. Because grace, by very nature, was earned for us at Calvary. We were running away from God with all our might. We had not done anything in our lives that he would say, you know what, that's so good, I can accept you on the grounds of your own works. It was all Jesus. It took someone to die as our sinless substitute in our place. And through him then, grace could flow to us. But it was all through him. Jesus is the only one who can earn grace for us. But we can then, as a Christian, position ourselves to experience grace. And we see that all the way through the Bible. He gives us means, things that will enable us to experience God's grace. We don't earn it. It's not a reward for the thing we're doing. But it is, if you will, a vehicle, a bridge in that moment to experiencing something of the grace of God. And so the teaching of God's word. Are you, do you earn God's grace on a Sunday morning as you listen to the preached word? I doubt it. But are you experiencing it? I hope so. We don't earn it. We do experience it. Worship is the same. Prayer, giving, the use and exercise of spiritual gifts, evangelism, fellowship, participating in those things, they never earn God's grace. He's not like, oh, I'm so pleased you're fellowshipping. Have a bit more grace. You've done well. That's not what it's like. But through that means, he's saying, you know what, that's great. You'll experience my grace through that means. Keep praying, keep worshipping, keep listening to God's word. They're aids, they're means by which you will experience my amazing grace. You know what another one of those is? Baptism. The sacraments. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's a means of experiencing his grace. Wayne Grudem, in his book Systematic Theology, writes as follows. He says, since Jesus commanded his church to baptize, Matthew 28, 19, We would expect that there would be a measure of blessing connected with baptism because all obedience to God by Christians brings God's unmerited favor with it. This obedience is specifically a public act of confessing Jesus as Savior, an act which in itself brings joy and blessing to a believer. Moreover, it is a sign of the believer's death and resurrection with Christ. And it seems fitting then that the Holy Spirit would work through a sign to increase our faith to increase our experiential realization of death to the power and love of sin in our lives and to increase our experience of the power of the new resurrection life in Christ that we have as believers. Since baptism is a physical symbol of the death and resurrection of Christ and our participation in them, it should also give additional assurance of union with Christ to all believers who are present. Finally, since water baptism is an outward symbol of inward spiritual baptism by the Holy Spirit, we may expect that the Holy Spirit will ordinarily work alongside that baptism, giving to believers an increasing realization of the benefits of the spiritual baptism to which it points. I think he's right. I agree with him. 
Can you earn God's grace through baptism? Never. But can you experience it? Is there something tangential in the midst of it all? Is there something in it that you know what? You, you spend time with the Lord in baptism and you're aware he has washed me clean of my sin. I have been buried with Christ. I have been raised with Christ. I feel an assurance. I sense him with me because I just know through my obedience to him in this process, through my love for him as a testimony, I sense his smile. It's a means of grace. He didn't earn it through your performance. But it's a moment in time that he's given to you as a, as a gift, as a sign and a seal. Something he's given you to experience his grace. And so finally, number three, how should we respond then to the call of baptism today? If this is all true, which I believe it is. How should we, Sovereign Grace Church and indeed our guests, how should we respond to the call of baptism today? Well, three things. Number one, if you are not a Christian... Become a Christian. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then know today before you leave that he can be your Lord and Savior. Now the whole point of this is baptism points us to the finished work of somebody else. You can't just get in the pool and then, oh, I'm saved. It doesn't work like that. You're saved through faith alone in Christ alone. That's the only way. The Bible is very clear that for you as an unbeliever, you are like me running away from God with all of your might, not interested in God, and exchanging the creator for the created. Challenge with that is sin then came into the world, sin that you freely followed, and because of that, you are now cut off from God in your sin. And Hebrews tells us very clearly that one day, after we die, we'll stand before the Lord and give an account for our lives. And where sin is found, we'll be removed from him and all blessing for all eternity. Because of our sin. Objects of his wrath. And that was me. But God in his grace sent his son for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life. He gave his only son so that Jesus came on the greatest rescue mission ever seen. He died at Calvary and all the time, all through his death, he was explaining, I'm a substitute for any of you who put your faith in me. The consequences of your sin are that you are cut off from my Father. The consequence of your sin is death. But if you put your faith in me, I will take your consequence and you may have my blessing. Jesus Christ died at Calvary so that you may have life and that in abundance. So if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I urge you, know him before you go home today. Because he changes your life and he came after you. Does that mean you have to start coming to church, you have to start giving, you have to start worshipping? It's up to you, really. I suggest you, you'll probably want to, but don't start there. The issue is just faith. It's faith alone. And I submit to you, when you do that, your life will be radically changed. Put your faith in him today and know him as your Lord and Saviour. If you are, though, a Christian and you've never been baptised, two words, get baptised. That's how we respond to this. We get in the pool and we, and we get baptized. Maybe you've never had the opportunity to do that. Well, the good news is you are going to have the opportunity. On October the 28th, we're back at the Thompson's Pool. I'm hoping it will have warmed up by then. If not, I'm not it's not that date, is it? Okay, another date. <laughs> yeah, I think that might be too late. We might be too late. We'll have to figure it out. We're, we're just in correspondence here. Live. Um, we'll figure it out. So it'll either be the end of October or November. I'll, I'll certainly get back to you with that date.
But if you've never had the opportunity to get baptized, get baptized. You know, get in the pool and do that. If you've never had the opportunity, now's a good time. You know, maybe on the other hand, though, maybe you've lacked prior to now a theological perspective on believers' baptism, particularly for those of you that maybe are pursuing joining Sovereign Grace Church and never heard this type of message. Maybe you've all the time, because of tradition or because of your family background or culture, um, held to infant baptism. So that's called pedo-baptism. So there's pedo-baptism and there's believers' baptism. And maybe that's been your story thus far. You were baptized as a child, and then maybe you were um, confirmed when you got older. Listen, I'm aware that there are a lot of churches that do that and believe that. We're not a local church that does that because we're not a local church that believes that. All the reasons that we don't believe it are because of everything I've just spoken to you over the last half an hour. Because we don't see that biblically. So baptism in the Bible, all the way through the Bible, is post-salvation. So the Bible, there's no illustration or example in the Bible of an infant being baptized. It's not there. There's no illustration or example of an individual being confirmed. That's something that's had to be traditionally done to try and look back to a child baptism. We don't find that in the Bible. When you look at the meaning of baptism, the very fact that you're as a sign and a symbol and a seal, revealing that you've been washed clean of your sin, that you've died with Christ and risen with Christ, how does that work for a baby? And how does it work if if I am revealing that I'm united with Christ in his death and resurrection, and then at 18 years old you think, I'm not even into this, forget it. So... Was I united with Christ in his death and resurrection as a child, but not anymore? Did I lose my salvation? How did that work? There's some real theological epic challenges to try and work out. How does that work? So I think due to the example of narrative in Scripture, due to the meaning of baptism in Scripture, I think if you've thus far believed in infant baptism, I would just encourage you humbly and prayerfully consider what you've held to in light of this message. Just consider it. Prayerfully consider, you know, if that's what baptism means and there are no examples of infants being baptized and confirmed, why have I done that? Maybe it is just family background or something that we've done. And then prayerfully consider, you know what, maybe it's time to get in the pool then and do that. That's what so many of this church have done. I think about 80% of this church have done that. But there's a time to do that. And I want to encourage you in particular on that point If you start to feel that, you know what, theologically, I think that's right. I think baptism is post-conversion. Then don't let nostalgia or sentimentality or misplaced honoring prevent you from getting in the pool. Because I think that's so easily done. Concern over, maybe I'll offend my parents. I may be able to offend my grandparents. I may be able to offend the family. You know what, as Christians, we don't want to willfully offend people. But when allegiance must be called for, Jesus must get the allegiance. We must sit under this word. We can't, we can't change the word depending on I don't want to offend a family. So does that mean if my family is a Muslim? Well, I don't want to offend them, so probably won't follow Christ. We, we don't do that. The issue is, you know what, this is, this is true. If this is true, I've got to follow it. And Jesus talks about that at different times in the Bible when he says, you know what, you're going to have to be willing to, to hate your mother and father. He's not saying literally hate your mother and father, but he's saying when the call needs to be done, are you going to follow me? Am I everything to you? And I get that. I mean, I grew up in a Pentecostal family. 
So I remember the first time I heard Reformed theology and didn't like it, but then began to be converted by it. I felt obliged to try and convert my entire family into Reformed theology. That was an error. That was a big error. But I started to preach to them about how God chose us and he came after us. And you can't lose your salvation. Mum, you've told me for years I can lose my salvation. You can't. It's amazing. You know, it, it was not wise to be communicating those things, not graciously, just full on. I'm, pre- I'm like Billy Graham to my family to try and convert them to Reformed theology. That was not wise. And as I got older, I've realized that and asked for their forgiveness at different points. But I have seen other people just communicate, you know what? And I've experienced this myself, where there's a time to go to a parent or a family member and say, you know what? I love you and I deeply respect you. But on this issue, I just hold differently. That's not dishonoring. That's respectful. But there's a time to say, you know what, mom, dad, I, I love you, but I just I believe something different. And here's why. And I'm not going to try and convert you. But for me, I've got to have the courage of my convictions. Because one day I'll stand before the Lord, not with you. I'll stand there by myself. And I want to please him. And this is what I believe. So if that is you or that can be a challenge for you, then listen, don't let nostalgia or sentimentality or misplaced honoring, although very well-meaning, stop you from obedience to Christ. Because that's the main thing. So if you are a Christian, you've never been baptized, then get baptized on October the 28th if Mrs. Thompson will let us, or November. And then number three, if you've already been baptized, then faithfully and joyfully attend the baptisms of others. Now, folks, do that. You know, please, please do that. Baptisms are a wonderfully special family time. They're a time of celebration. They're a time of rejoicing. They're the time when we come together as a family and we say, what God has done in your life, I'm celebrating it here with you, and I wouldn't miss it for the world. I think of baptisms like weddings. You know, that, that's the type of importance I think of them. You just think, unless I am like dying, I'm there because this is this is monumental. What's happened in your this is this is a miracle. What has happened in your life and what we're celebrating here? I wouldn't miss it for the for a moment because I'm going to celebrate this and I'm going to never forget this day for the rest of my life. So I'm I'm here. Please do that. Please come along to baptisms. There are times when we get to be together as a family and rejoice together as a family. And for all the people that are getting baptized, what a great way of honoring them to say, you're a part of my church. And so I don't really know you well, but that doesn't matter. You're a part of my church and I want to celebrate with you and give thanks to God for you. But it doesn't just provide us with a celebration and rejoicing moment for others. I think it is also a personal reminder of our own story. When you watch somebody else going under the water and coming out, Every single time, it should be a reminder of you. That's what Christ did for me. He washed me clean. I was buried with him. I was raised with him. That's what he's done. And through that sign and symbol, it should scream the gospel to you. And I think it does. Listen, Wayne Grudem, just in closing, says, The amazing truths of passing through the waters of judgment safely of dying and rising with Christ and of having our sins washed away are truths of momentous and eternal proportion and ought to be an occasion for giving great glory and praise to God. If churches would teach these truths more clearly, baptisms would be the occasion of much more blessing in the church. I think that's true. Baptisms should be a great time of family celebration in the local church. And so this is my attempt, albeit probably a poor one. It's my attempt to try and then shine a light on this great teaching and this great sacrament. It's a gift. 
It's given to us by the Savior as a sign and a seal to teach us an assurance of our great salvation. So let's treasure it. Amen. Let's stick with it and enjoy it and participate it. And would every eye then go to where the symbol points? Jesus, let's pray. Oh Lord, if we have examined baptism under the context of a series called Sanctifying the Ordinary, Lord, I'm aware that is in so many ways a scandalous moment because there is nothing ordinary about baptism. Lord, would you forgive us for times where in reality the sacrament has become ordinary? Oh Lord, there is nothing, there is nothing ordinary about something that points to the great work of the gospel in our lives. And so, Lord, when we gather then at different points to baptize people, as we consider baptism in our own lives, would we be staggered that we even get to be there and participate as we look on at others being baptized? And where where we are the recipient of that baptism, Lord, would in that moment a sign and a seal become so real in our lives that it be burnt into our lives as with a hot iron? Because it all points to you. And we want all our lives to be about you. So thank you for this gift. Would it be treasured? Would it be desired? Would it be delighted in sovereign grace to Sydney for the rest of our earthly days? In Jesus' name, amen.